Good morning, ladies from Every Woman's Grace. Um, today's lecture is being recorded because the pastors and elders at our church are following the command to be subject to all civil authorities. Since our state, our country, and even the world are in the midst of very uncertain times, I'm extremely grateful to know that we can trust our church leadership to lead us in biblical truth. I recently saw a t-shirt with the church has left the building emblazoned across the front of it. You know, the cleverness of people really inspires me. And that one sentence says so much. The church will stand. Buildings are not the church. The church is the body of Christ. And he promises that he alone builds it and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it in Matthew 16. We will eventually return to our places of worship, but we must always remember what the church really is. And this passage today has so much to teach us about the body of Christ, about the church. When I was growing up, my mom, a true Southern belle from Alabama, kept the Emily Post Book of Etiquette prominently displayed on our bookshelf. Like every true Southerner, she was extremely concerned that her children be raised with proper etiquette and gracious manners. And rule number one, never discuss politics or religion in polite society. Well, today's passage is an in-depth look at both government and religion and how they're to be able, how we're to live them out together when you're living under the grace of God. So let's look back at where we've already been and what we've learned in the previous chapters of Romans. In Romans 3, we learned what it means to be saved. Beautifully detailed in those verses, 21 through 24, and how to become saved by being justified by God's grace working through faith. Because we're saved, we're new creation with a new heart, that lives differently than the world, and it responds differently than the world. We've learned how a believer is to live in relation to God in Romans 3, excuse me, Romans 12, 1, which says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We've learned how to respond in relation to others in Romans 12, 3 through 16. Brothers and sisters in Christ, and even non-believers, including our enemies. Chapter 13 is now going to look at how a believer is to live in relation to governing authorities. Paul's giving us very practical marks of a true Christian. Romans 12, 21, if you remember, ended with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this flows directly into chapter 13. So what is this good behavior that we're supposed to live out to be subject to our governing authorities? We're going to see who these authorities are, why they're good, and precisely how we are to live in relation to them. So open your Bibles with me, please, to Romans 13, and I will read verses 1 through 7. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists these authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to, do, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. We start off in verse 1, and we're being told to be subject to authorities. So who is to be subject? Well, it's every person, um, whether one is for God or one who is against God, we must all obey the civil authorities. Authority is mentioned five times in these seven verses. It's a crucial element of this command. So we need to ask ourselves, what are the biblical authorities and why are they so important? This word comes from the Greek word excusia, which means right and might. It describes the absolute power and the right of God, who is the source of all authority and power. Interestingly, the word authority is rarely used in the Old Testament, but the concept shows up rather quickly. In Genesis 1.28, God gave man authority over nature. We see again in Genesis 3.16, when God gives man authority over his wife, and then again in Leviticus 19.3, he gives parents authority over their children. From these passages, we can understand that God, who is the ultimate authority as creator and king of all, grants authority in different areas to fulfill his purposes. God has ordained main institutions by which he has structured and funneled his authority to his creation. Scripture is the source of all authority. Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we're more familiar with, says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Our very own pastor, John MacArthur, points out that God has instituted four authorities on this earth. Government over its citizens, church over all believers, parents over their children, 
and masters, or in today's language, employers over employees. We need to grasp the importance of these authorities that God has set up, because Satan certainly does. His very first temptation of a human was to question the authority of God. If you look at Genesis 3.1, Satan asks the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And then in verse 4, he says to the woman, You surely shall not die. Satan's goal is to get the believer to believe that God is not the ultimate authority. And what he says isn't true. Then we'll rebel against him. Righteousness or excuse me, rebelliousness is natural to every man since the fall. Proverbs 22, 15 tells us that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And this rebelliousness is what makes children look at people defiantly and say, you're not the boss of me. Anyone who has ever either babysat or hired a babysitter, understands the concept of delegated authority. The parents who have authority over their children choose a babysitter who will will represent their interests while they're gone. We were fortunate um, to have a wonderful teenage girl that lived next door to us when our four children were growing up. She was a trustworthy babysitter, and we entrusted the safety, provision, and care of our children to her. We knew that she was going to keep our little ones from full-blown chaos. She understood that if there was any problem, we wanted to know about it. Our kids also knew that in our absence, they were to obey her. We made it very clear to them that she had authority and that if they didn't obey, there would be consequences. Well, generally, our kids were really great. They loved her, and they didn't give her trouble. But I do vividly remember the night we returned home, asked how things had gone, as we always did, and to our surprise, we found out that one of our mischievous little ones had refused to go to bed that night. What had begun as fun, ended up with her having to drag said child up the stairs to bed. She completely ratted out the child, and we were so grateful. My husband paid her, walked her to her front door, and immediately came home, woke up said child, and calmly but firmly enforced the rules of our home. It never happened again. What happens in our homes is very similar to what happens in civil government. It's the same heart condition that makes us refuse to go to bed as children, makes us want to rebel when our taxes go up, or our politicians make decisions and statements that we don't agree with or we don't think are necessary. But this is clear. We're to subject ourselves to these authorities all civil authorities, from the president all the way down to the dog catcher. Why? Because their legitimacy comes from God, not from themselves, it says in verse 1. Are there exceptions to this? Well, not in this passage. We'll get to exceptions in a bit, but this 
command is a general command to be followed. It's always a mistake to pattern our lives around the exceptions rather than the rule. So what does it mean to be in subjection to something? After all, this word is used in many commands found in Scripture. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, 16, to be subject to fellow workers or laborers who have devoted themselves to serving the saints. We find that servants are to be subject to their masters in 1 Peter 2. Wives are to be subject to their own husbands in 1 Peter 3. We're to be subject to our elders in 1 Peter 5. Even the animals in the earth are subject to humans in Genesis 1, 26 and 28 and chapter 2 as well. So, since these are commands, we'd better understand what it means to be subject. To be in subjection means to recognize the legitimacy of the authority over you. To recognize that they do, in fact, have authority over you. It's to line up and to take your orders. It's hupatasso. It's a military term. It literally means to put your neck under the yoke. Although obedience is often involved in subjection um, to an authority, subjection is a recognition and an acknowledgement of the authority. And that causes your attitude and actions to fall in line under that authority. The Jewish people had a real problem with this. The Jews were much like that child who's told to sit down and they comply with a scowl on their face. And we call that sitting on the outside, but standing on the inside. They were notoriously bad citizens. They had often been ruled by other conquering nations and they had obeyed them to stay alive, but they refused to acknowledge the authorities in large part because of Deuteronomy 17 verse 15, which says, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. What they were forgetting, though, is that they did not put the foreigner over them. God did it because of their disobedience. At the time Paul wrote this letter, the Jews were under Roman rule. And it was just a few years later that this great revolt by the Jewish zealots led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jews. Some of us have a hard time submitting to civil authority. We see the evil. We hear the cruel, crass, immoral words. We're appalled at the laws that might restrict our freedoms. And we see some leaders as inept or corrupt. But nowhere in the New Testament did Jesus ever advocate followers were to change the government or even to reform society. Jesus had a very clear purpose. He didn't come to reform society from without. He came to reform and transform hearts from within. This was a huge stumbling block for the Jews. They wanted their king to reform their nation, not their hearts. Sadly, this can be a stumbling block for many professing Christians today. Social reform 
should not be the goal of a Christian, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is our goal. The gospel transforms the heart of the believer. It's the goal of Christ. It was the goal of the apostles, and it's to be our goal as well. The Jews believed that the kingdom would be immediate. But the king had another plan, a better plan, a plan that gave hope to all, not an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is a huge theme throughout scripture. It's mentioned 160 times in the New Testament alone. So we should have a handle on what this means. The kingdom of God is referring to the reign of the king. Without a king, there's no kingdom. He is the ruler of all. Our God reigns and our God rules. Psalm 103, 19 says it this way. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Ladies, there's nothing in heaven or earth that is not under his rule. He has purposed to save a people for himself, and he rules over the hearts of his people. He rules over sin by establishing salvation. He rules over Satan by defeating his most horrific attack on God's creation, which was death. And there is the hope of a future, a literal earthly reign to come. John Piper says it this way, The kingdom of God is God's reign, his sovereign action in the world to redeem and deliver a people, and then at a future time, finish it and renew his people and the universe completely. God chooses people to be citizens of his kingdom. Our heavenly citizenship is both our position and our hope. Do you have this hope Have you become a citizen of the kingdom of God by placing your faith and your trust in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection on our behalf? If not, don't wait. Our citizenship here is massively flawed and it's extremely temporary. And this has been so evident to the world in recent days. When it's over, our true citizenship will be made known. Philippians 3.19 says that for those who are not citizens of heaven, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But if you're a believer, verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a citizen of God's kingdom, are you living out that hope? Or are you perhaps living as if you can somehow make his kingdom here and now? We must never confuse the two. Christ alone is our deliverer. No ruler can deliver man. Galatians 1.4 says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and Father. His plan is set. His timing is perfect. 
and he will usher in his kingdom, and he does not need our help. Until then, we must do what he told us in Luke 4, 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Our job is not to create the kingdom of God. Our job is to give the good news, to hand out the invitations. Sometimes even believers need to be reminded that no politician, political party, or ruler can change the world or save us. That job has already been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the middle of an election cycle here in the United States, And we can get so wrapped up in the fighting and arguing that accompanies these elections. But remember, 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 16 says this, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does not good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. We are so blessed here to have the freedom to voice our concerns and our opinions with our vote. Yes, we should use that freedom. We even have some representatives and in government, local and Um, national, who are believers, and they attempt to lead righteously. Thank the Lord for these men and women and pray for them often. They need our prayers. All of our leaders and authorities need our prayers, in fact. In fact, we're commanded to pray for all of them. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says this, First of all, them I urge that supplications prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Jeremiah 29.7 said, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Notice, ladies, that this doesn't say that all authorities are obedient to God. It says that they're there because God has ordained it for them to be there. So let's look back for a second at the time that Paul is writing this letter to the Romans. Rome is the capital city of the Roman Empire. And who was the leader at that time? It was Nero. Nero became the sixth emperor of Rome after his mom, Agrippa, had his his stepfather, Nero's stepfather, Claudius, murdered. He then proceeded to have his stepbrother and his mother murdered. He was known for extreme excesses and cruelty. He was responsible for setting the city of Rome on fire. And while it burned, he went up to a tower to play his harp. 
the fire burned for nine whole days. And when Nero, Nero found out that he was being blamed, he became depressed, which resulted in his determination to blame it upon the Christians. It was then that he refined his cruelty with barbarities that only the evilest mind could contrive. He had some Christians sewn up in animal skins and then attacked and eaten by dogs. And others were dressed in shirts made of stiff wax, and they were fixed to poles and set on fire just to illuminate Nero's gardens. Paul and Peter were eventually martyrs under Nero's evil reign. But this is what Peter said in 1 Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Ladies, we have it so easy compared to the believers living at that time. Peter and Paul tell us that it doesn't matter if our leaders are immoral pagans. We're to live as model citizens, regardless of how they live, even if we suffer for it. 1 Peter 3.17 says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. I think that we've often gotten off course in this area. We've inadvertently mixed our politics and our Christianity. But there's nowhere in Scripture that tells us to do that. It is God who establishes these authorities, and he delegates power to them. But wait, is there any earthly ruler whom God has not placed in their position? Well, let's revisit Romans 9 for just a moment. Romans 9, 16 and 17 tells us about Pharaoh. It says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or that man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Pharaoh was brutal to the Jews, but God raised him up for his purposes to proclaim his name. What about Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of ancient Babylon? He was extremely prideful and also very cruel. But the prophet Jeremiah calls Nebuchadnezzar God's servant sent by God to destroy the northern kingdom because of their disobedience. He, Nebuchadnezzar, besieged and took Jerusalem, returning with all the treasures from the temple and the king's palace, and he took them to Babylon. He also took Daniel and the other young men who were considered to be the strongest and the most promising of all the Jews. They were indoctrinated into the Babylonian ways in attempt to remove any nationality or religion from them. 
and Daniel remained in Babylon for the rest of his very long life. Yet, he continually demonstrated an unshakable faith in God, respect for those in authority, and the courage to resist the repeated threats to his life by trusting God. How did God use Daniel's subjection to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, after God gave the king over to insanity for seven years, where he literally crawled and ate grass in the field like an animal, Daniel led the people. And when sanity was restored to the king, he said this in Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways are justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. What about Pilate? It would be impossible to find a greater example of an evil ruler than the one who commanded the crucifixion of God. But when Pilate asked Jesus, don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered him and said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. That's in John 19. History is full of evil rulers. From Saul to Saddam Hussein and everyone in between, before and after. So why are they allowed by God to rule? The obvious answer is that although many do not rule righteously, they're given the authority to rule by God himself. God rules over all rulers. Kings, presidents, tyrants, dictators, even the Antichrist in Revelation 13. Remember those exceptions to submission to authority? There, there are few, but they are important. We saw first the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, when Pharaoh commanded that the midwives kill any Hebrew baby boy, they feared God more than Pharaoh, and they did not do as he commanded. It says that God dealt well with the midwives. Then there was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were saved from the fiery furnace because they would not bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 6, when the authorities passed an ordinance that no one could pray to any god or be thrown into the lion's den, Daniel continued to pray to his god. Three times a day, just as he had always done, God spared him in the den of lions. And in verse 22, it says that Daniel told the king that an angel had shut the lion's mouths because he was found blameless before God and before the king. And what about the apostles? They would not obey when they were told not to preach the gospel in Acts 4 and Acts 5. Future believers and the Antichrist. Well, we know from Revelation 13 and 14 that a time is coming when believers in Christ will have to not obey the command to worship the beast or the Antichrist and his image. They will not receive the mark of the beast and they will be killed. Exception to this command is only 
when obedience to civil authority requires disobedience to God's word. But exceptions are not the rule, and the rule is very, very clear. We're to be subject to civil authorities because they have been instituted by God. When an election doesn't go the way we voted, or we get pulled over for texting while driving, do we understand that those, that elected official or that police officer is a minister of God? Remember Nebuchadnezzar, who cruelly conquered Judah and made people slaves? This is what God says of him in Jeremiah 27, 8. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword with famine and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. This is an important principle of subjection, that resisting civil authority is resisting God himself. And resisting brings punishment. We're to trust God And we're to understand that these authorities are not against us, but believe that the authorities are ministers of God. In John MacArthur's book, The Christian and Government, he says this, Satan is in charge of the kingdoms of the world. He has the right to give those kingdoms to whomever he chooses. Although national governments are ordained by God, nonetheless, they express Satan's influence and activity. This demonic activity is kept in check by those governments. Yet in some sense, governments are under the control of Satan. It's an interesting paradox. Satan is active and aggressive in human government, yet he is limited by God because he established government to preserve human society. So while we say that the government of the nations of the world are ordained by God, We're not saying that they're necessarily being run by God or are reflective of his will. Since man has unlimited potential for evil, which is incited by the world and the flesh, government is an essential restraint. God has ordained it to restrain the satanic activity inherent within each nation. They're there for our good either negatively or positively. What happens when you have a society with no punishments? You get chaos, you get anarchy. What happens when you have a society with no rewards? Likewise, you get chaos, you get anarchy. How does civil government punish? Well, we know we get citations or tickets, fines, even incarceration. This passage also says, capital punishment. No matter where you stand on that, God's word is clear on the authority of governments to administer capital punishment. Even wicked governments can act as a deterrent to crime. Very few governments will harm those who obey them. So how does civil government reward? Well, they reward us by providing protection through the police, the firemen, and the military by building infrastructures to enable us to live and to move more freely, by granting freedoms to their citizens and working to protect those freedoms. 
Sometimes there are even medals given, like the Medal of Freedom and the Nobel Peace Prize. 2 Timothy 2.2 says that these authorities provide for their citizens a peaceful and quiet life. Subjection to these authorities is both a duty and a delight. Wrath and rewards are good reasons to obey God's appointed authorities. But conscience, in verse 5, is another good reason. What does a traffic signal tell you? We know that the red light means stop, and we know that the green light means go, but that yellow light. Well, I learned in driver's ed that the yellow light at a signal means slow down and prepare to stop. However, to the rebellious of us, it means put the pedal to the metal and make it through. When I was 18 years old and I was driving my dad's 1965 Chevy truck home from work, I saw the light ahead of me change from green to yellow. And instead of slowing down and preparing to stop, I chose to hit the gas and to race through that intersection. But just as I was entering the intersection and I was going very fast, the light turned red. And I saw out of the corner of my eye, a police car. And he was stopped at the light waiting. I was gripped with terror. So what did I do? I slammed on the brakes, which caused my very large and heavy truck to spin around in the center of the intersection. And when I came to a stop, miraculously without hitting anything, I found myself nose to nose with the very police car that had sent me into my panic. Our eyes met. Mine were large with fear and his were in complete disbelief. And I don't know why, but he was merciful to me. And he waved me on just shaking his head in disbelief. I remember he put his hands on his his steering wheel and just head down and shook his head. He could not believe what I had done. Why did I panic? Why was I so afraid? Because I knew that I should not cross that intersection. And that this minister of God was going to catch me and he was going to give me a citation. Fear of getting caught is an effective deterrent to lawbreakers. And that's the plan. It's there to prevent chaos. It's there to restrain evil. My conscience grew that day. I stopped seeing the yellow light as my invitation to race through, but as a warning to be careful. My fear of authority stopped me that day, but now it's my conscience that stops me. God, through his spirit in us, often directs us through our conscience. We must be responsive to our conscience or run the very real risk of a more pronounced form of discipline often administered by his appointed authorities. If you remember back in Romans 12, 19, we were told not to take vengeance. Personal vengeance is not for us to take. But chapter 13 tells us that this is one of the way that God cares for us. The government restrains evil and they're to avenge evil. They are ministers of God, an agent of justice. Although imperfect, the power of government is to avenge evil, which prevents all of us from going out there and killing one another. God's eternal purpose is being carried out. 
God is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations and the placement of rulers. Remember, Scripture doesn't say that governments are always good, but it does say that they are ordained by God. And as such, we have responsibilities toward them. We're to pay our taxes and to give fear and honor to those to whom they are due in verse 6 and 7. This is not a gray area. It's not a yellow light situation. Jesus explicitly taught that taxes are to be paid even to the pagan Roman government. And they allowed tax collectors to gouge the citizens as long as they gave their portion to the Roman government. We're to give to this world that which bears their image. Matthew twenty-two seventeen <clears throat> starts with this. When the Pharisees had plotted to trap Jesus with their questions, they were always doing that, they asked him if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And you remember how Jesus responded. He said, show me a denarius. Whose likeness is on this? And they said, Caesar's. So Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Things of this world belong to this world. The world has stamped its image on the things of this world, and God made it that way. But what are the things that belong to God? The soul of man, the human heart made in the image of God. God will not give over the hearts that he has claimed. Nothing can separate us from his love. As long as there have been taxes, people have tried to figure out ways to get out of paying them. I mean, really, who enjoys writing that check every April 15th? Does government always use our tax money wisely? No. Do they sometimes waste money? Yes. Do they use it for things that are against our beliefs? Probably. Pay them. This is not an option for the believer. It's clear. We're not to use our beliefs to justify our rebellion. So what else do we owe, though? Does your leader's shameful lifestyle offend you? Do his or her words irritate you? Do your representatives not represent your biblical viewpoint? You must honor the office. It is God who has ordained the position and placed that person in it for good of the people and for his ultimate glory. Have you ever caught yourself saying, I don't respect that person because he or she has not earned my respect. That is not a biblical concept. In fact, in Acts 23, when Paul was being beaten and falsely accused, he responded to the one in charge and he said this, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Oh, the people around him were shocked and they said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. We must not behave as the world does. We're free to disagree, but we're not free to disrespect. God has a specific plan, and all of history falls within his plan. 
As believers, we must live lives that show the world that we believe this. Remember what led to this chapter? Paul tells us to overcome evil with good. He goes on to explain why it's to our benefit and to the benefit of society to do good. But there's a much, much more important reason. In 1 Peter 2, 15, it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enabled him even to subject himself to all things. We live here, and therefore we must live according to the rules here, but we belong to the kingdom of God. What impact should this citizenship have on our life here? We should understand that government is God's design. Obedience to government is God's command. Being a citizen of heaven should make us better citizens. Subjection to civil authority is God's will, and it furthers his gospel message to the world. This lesson has shown some very practical ways to live out our lives as believers, as new creations in Christ. We are to submit to civil authorities and to pay what is owed. And next week, we're going to look at one thing that we owe, but can never be fully paid. I just want to take this moment to remind you to download your questions for daily study on the EWG site so that you're encouraged to keep your mind and your heart focused on God and his word as we live through these tumultuous times. I want to close with a prayer from Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet said this in Isaiah 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Let us fully believe this about you, Heavenly Father, our King. Isaiah said, This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that has stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So, Lord, continually remind us in these evil days, that you are king, that you have a plan and a purpose for every nation, for every ruler, and for every authority, that you require our subjection to these authorities for our own good, but also it's your will, and your will is good. Lord, keep our consciences active and ignited as we live out our citizenship in your kingdom while residing as alien citizens of this world. We give all honor and glory to you, our King, our ruler, and our future hope. Amen.